Oh boy, welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. Trance, they did it again! They continue to make NHL history, the Vancouver Canucks. They are going to make absolutely certain that no one touches their record for consecutive games, blowing multi-goal leads to start the series up to nothing, then up 3-2 again, lose 4-3 in overtime to the Blue Jackets. You know how sometimes NHL records are made to be broken? Like sometimes, you know, for example, for example, if you go look at NHL save percentage, right? Like, all of the top 10 of all time played in the last 10 years because goalies got taller and tactical improvements significantly upped uh, save percentage. And all of a sudden, the last couple of years, we've seen that reverse. And Cam Sharon's going to join us later in the program, yeah. but he made this point last night, which is that we're now living in an NHL with a higher scoring environment, right? Like, go, this is not a 3-2 league at the moment. Like, go look at the scores last night and you will see, you know, with the exception of, you know, a few games, like 7-5 in Ottawa, right? 5-2, um, 4-2, right? Like, this is a 4-3 league, not a 3-2 not not three three league. Yeah. And so, all of a sudden, you've got a sort of different set of considerations. As Sharon noted, the Devils, Flyers, Blue Jackets, Bruins, Sharks, Oilers, Flames, and Kings all faced two deficits at some point in the game last night. Five of those eight teams wound up winning their game. So, Vancouver's the first team to do it. They will not be the last. So you're you're, you're saying this is not the uh, the Cal Ripken Iron Man streak? I would love. I would. Yeah. No. This is not. <laughs> this is not. Wayne Gretzky has more yeah. assists than anyone else has points. Right. Like this is very much going to be replicable. And in fact, if the NHL continues to trend in the direction that it's trending. Uh, we're going to see this far more often, right? Like, we already have to revise it. It's like the three goal leads, the worst in hockey. <laughs> we already need to make a, a new, worse, less sensical statement than the already ridiculous two goal lead statement that we used previously without thinking. There's a lot of things to crush the Canucks for, in my view. I thought their defensive performance was really poor last night. Like, oh, I don't. Yeah, we'll get into it. There's plenty to criticize from yeah. last night. But, you know. I, I don't think this is a record made to be broken. I, I would like I, I'm not saying I'd bet on it. I wouldn't give it even money odds, but there's a real chance that this brutal Canucks record history in the making yeah. is dashed before the end of the year. Well, but with we're the talking, way things are going. So we're talking. I don't know, because I don't know if it's a record just in any segment of it the is. season. It oh, is. it is. For any four, segment four of the is season. any segment of the season. Three was to begin. <laughs> four is now any segment of the season. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I thought yeah. they had just extended their lead to start the season. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. No. Well, okay. The any segment one, then yeah. The, 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 to start I'm, the to start the season, that that one might last a little while. I'm, I'm just saying, there's there's a fair bit of bad defense being played around the NHL at the moment, and there's so much speed and so much attacking talent, and there's just not enough star goalies to go around. This, you know, I know it's frustrating. There's other things from the, there's other things about Vancouver's performance that we will oh, yeah. crush them for over the course of our two hours. I'm I, I want to pass on sort of buying too much into the Canucks frittering away and can't hold a lead thing. No one can hold a lead in the NHL at the moment. More than anything, it's just darkly funny. 
right? Like that's <laughs> that's what it is. It's just like, are you? They did it again. I know. What? I know. Game. There's other ways to lose games. <laughs> well, I'm. I know. I. I, I, I and I liked their first period, right? I liked. Oh their, yeah, for I sure. I liked their first period, but I knew that they were going to be the more tired team. And. So, you know, I think I had, like, a tweet after the first period. I'm like, Canucks were the better team in that period by more than the shot clock dictates. You know, I'd say they're firmly in control, but we've been down this road. Mm-hmm. I mean, you called it on the show yesterday. That was yes. a great That was a great pick. Yeah. You, said, you said bet the Canucks to win the first and bet the Columbus Blue Jacks to win the third. There you go. Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, the Canucks looked tired. They faded hard down the stretch. The Gaudreau goal, man. The, the, that was the, a tough one. The line change was brutal. The way that Stillman got taken out wide, he's played well, right? The way Martin and Shen both got beat cross crease. You know, Pedersen didn't read it quickly enough, but Gaudreau's so fast on his edges, I don't know that it would have mattered. He wasn't going to get within a stride of making a difference anyway. I mean, that was just... You know, again, yakety sacks, play it, right? Like, it's yeah. just like you could play yakety sacks over Gaudreau just knifing ruthlessly through the Canucks. Uh, I just thought after the first period, Blue Jackets outchanced the Canucks 22-12. to 12. Fatigue set in for Vancouver for sure, but this was really, for me, the first game. Like, in the Edmonton and the Washington Capitals games, the Canucks got gently patted on the head by mm-hmm. a superior team, and then those teams shut them down. They weren't able to produce. But the Canucks weren't a train wreck defensively. I mean, you don't like seeing the Caps score two backdoor tap-ins the way they did in quick succession. But, like, they weren't surrendering just bucketfuls of chances uh, every second. Philadelphia was mostly lucky. I feel like they capitalized on, you know, their one glorious opportunity in the third to win that game in regulation. Last night, all of a sudden, the Blue Jackets started to just absolutely generate. Just generate and generate and shift after shift. This hugely limited team, right? They, they looked bad. They looked straight up bound for the bottom five. And they were crushing the Canucks in terms of what they were generating scoring chances-wise. Yeah, didn't love that. It was really bad. And you said on the show yesterday, you know, just play, you know... <laughs> leaning a little bit into the cliche of play a full 60 minutes. Like, don't have that one period where you just lay an egg. They did they, two. two. They really. Two. I mean, the third I was, thought the second was worse than the yeah, third. Yeah, yeah. But they did it really twice uh, in that game. They played one good period and, you know, built a 2 nothing lead. Not enough, obviously, to get the job done. Now, now we'll chat to Cam about this, too, because I texted him and I said, did the Canucks get as worse over the latter two periods of the game as it looked like to me? And he was like, no, they just weren't that good at all. Right, like he actually contested my perception of the first, saying that in fact Columbus's territorial edge kind of lasted all game. Vancouver wasn't particularly better early; they just weren't very good against a Blue Jackets team that we know is far worse, or at least on paper is far worse than they are. There's no reason for this. Like, there's no reason to lose to that team. I second leg of a back-to-back schedule mm-hmm. loss is obviously a qualifier here, but. And that would have a lot oh more weight in a different context, right? Yeah, I mean, one point, one point out of a second leg yeah. of back to back is usually like totally fine. Yeah, if they closed out a multi goal lead in Washington, and you come in and you get a point, you're like, hey, three out of four on a road back to back for sure. Feeling like, really good about that, b- bouncing back with a chance to end the road trip well in Minnesota. Yeah, hundred percent. But you can't even. That's the thing with this team is they've they put themselves in a position where we can't even kind of 
give gentle praise or compliment things like that that you normally would be in a position to because there's been so much bad that has preceded it and so much cause for concern. And, you know, honestly, Drancer, I mean, we'll get into it here. And by the way, we are coming uh, to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And, of course, you can always text us 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. But, like, you know, it's probably not a great idea to start a two-hour radio show with what can you say? But honestly, <laughs> what can you say? I feel like we could just replay large chunks of yesterday's show at this point. I mean, do we have audio queued up? Can we do that? <laughs> I, nope. I don't know okay. if we do. We'll try to get it Too at bad. some point. Second segment is yeah. yesterday's second segment, so stay tuned. <laughs> but, like, it's – and we'll go through it. We'll go into more detail because there are, yeah, I mean, you know, other things to dissect. At the, at the end of the day, Jamie – But you, what we, are we – like, with you and me, what can we say? The answer is always a lot. <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot more. Somehow. I mean, apparently. I mean, I'm ready to do 15 minutes on Blankenberg. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to go – at the end of the day. At the end of the day, Vancouver once again generated nothing from their defense. The difference between last night and the other games was how poor porous they were defensively. Permissive would be the kind, like tactful yeah. way of putting it. Um, well, and that Gaudreau goal, and we'll uh, we'll play it back from Elliot Friedman at some point during the show. But I mean, even he was on with Merrick this morning and brought that up specifically as like that's really concerning. To just see a guy completely torch your team, and no one is even close to stopping well, him. Right There's after acres take, of space. Right after you take the lead, you retake the lead on a lucky bounce. Like credit Bo Horvat for going to the net, but you know it's it's a bounce at the end of the day. Then and, and here's the other thing: like you look at that Lazar goal, nice tip in in Washington, lucky bounce. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not like the Canucks are snake bit right now. Well, and in fact, you know, as much as people have been saying, you know, our problem's not scoring goals. I actually think one of my biggest concerns about how they're playing is not generating much at 5-on-5. Five five. No, not they, gener- Absolutely. Per natural stat trick, fir- third worst in the league, scoring chances per 60, ahead of only two teams that don't want to score in Chicago and Arizona, right? And, below and, Philly, below San Jose, below that Columbus team. And it's by been the way, a real struggle. And by the way, that was their MO last year in well, the first 25. It's, ex- I, it's exactly... And we, we, we were talking yesterday about all the ways this feels kind of hauntingly familiar to last year, and... That conversation we were having was, okay, the defense hasn't been terrible. The structure has been there. But is it because they're completely sacrificing any offensive punch? And it feels like we're having that same conversation. Except this year, like, I know the five-on-five numbers look okay. But, for example, their expected goals was like 55% going into last night, and now it's at like 48. Yeah. Right? Like, we're still at a point where one game is going to change things. The Canucks are going to end up, I think, on the wrong side of 50 in terms of expected goals, but that's okay. Like 50% expected goals rate with good special teams and goaltending means you're a 97 point team, right? Mm-hmm. Like neutral is positive in a league where average makes the playoffs. Right. So, uh, but I do think that's going to come down. I, I think the Canucks five on five game has been far softer than the underlying numbers look through four games. And I think we're going to see it trend that direction just based off the fact that they've only really won the neutral zone against one team this whole season. And that team was Philadelphia. I mean, Oh boy, I, I you know I I think if you're stretching for positives with their five on five forms look good, I think you're looking at a stats page on, on natural stat trick. I don't think you're watching these games because yeah. they have not been full value for the way those underlines. I don't look. know outside of the out since the first period in Edmonton, the stretches even where, then even then yeah, but the stretches where I really feel like oh this team is doing what it wants, this team is controlling the game have been few and far between and really i like to even string like 
three shifts like that together has been a struggle. You might get it with Pedersen. I think the fourth line has had some nice shifts. I thought Horvath's line had some okay shifts last night. But Miller has been missing in action five on five so far. And just any sense of, okay, this you know this is an eight-minute chunk where they're really controlling the game, they haven't been able to do it. No, they haven't been able to stack heavy shifts yeah. one on top of the other. And Miller was fundamentally dropped down the lineup in t- from a match. Like, he played only a minute and a half against Gaudreau while Pedersen handled the bulk of that responsibilities. Um, so that was a meaningful usage change, right? Uh, they give sort of Miller, uh, Kuzmenko, and Mikheyev and significantly drop his defensive responsibilities. He wasn't the first guy over the boards on the PK. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Boudreau is not looking at JT Miller to solve this. In fact, his usage suggests that he's identified Miller's play as a significant issue and is trying to go I, about fixing it. And there, there's really no way around that. And again, you know, I've no, it it, the actions speak louder than yeah. words. He can say whatever he wants. Those are the decisions he's making. It's it's clear as day. I, I brought up um, where the Canucks rank overall in, in terms of the, the league and generating scoring chances per 60. Third worst, again, ahead of only Arizona and Chicago. JT Miller, worst among forwards, right? Below Dakota Joshua, below Neil Zaman, below Curtis Lazar. D- worst on the not, team. Do not look at Tanner Pearson's uh, shot attempt against number. It's in the 70s. Yeah. And and Miller's expected goals margins in, in the 20s. I mean, I, I don't even know. I, that's, hard to, that's hard to fathom considering his track record in Vancouver, right? Like, that's hard to fathom considering what we know of JT Miller. It's really which, stunning. Which is that he's a good – like, he's, he's not a defensive stopper, don't get me wrong, but he's a good two-way player. Well, and at the very least, okay, hey, we – like, and I know the defensive zone is getting a lot of the – uh, attention, you know, our, our colleague Jason Bruff pointed posted the clip last night on Twitter where JT Miller's standing around doing a lot of puck watching. I saw that at like twenty five thousand views last night. I was like, oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's fair. And okay, maybe you say, look, at center, he's not going to be a, a big time defensive player. You don't want him in that match role. That's fair. But you would still expect him to be generating. We've never seen him not be able to generate. And. It's not, I can't even sit here and say, well, he's getting unlucky, right? It's not as if he's generating a lot of shots and they're not going in, or, oh, his teammates are letting him down, his line mates are letting him down. He's not creating anything. He's not on the puck. He's not active. He looks slow. He looks disengaged a lot of the time. Like, eventually it will turn around, but it's not, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, you know what? We're due for a JT Miller breakout any game right now. It doesn't look like that. No. There's actually no indication that that's coming. No, like, you can't find any... Oh, don't worry. We, sorry, sorry. The only indication is, is, is his is, track record. Is previously. your priors yep. and and our understanding that JT Miller is a good hockey player and good hockey players don't suddenly not become good hockey players at the age of twenty nine, um, without injuries or significant mitigating circumstances, right? I mean, and and those are absent in this case. In fact, the Canucks provided him stability prior to this season. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, Miller's going to be a popular talking point. He should be. He has to be better than this. I'm sure he feels that keenly at the moment. Every time we've heard from him, he's been super critical of his mm-hmm. own performance. Oh, no doubt. But, you know, <laughs> again, words words aren't sufficient, right? Like, this is about a team that's been doubled down on and has come out of the gate and been far worse. Like, there was no one who could ever possibly have captured this downside a week into the season, this level of downside. Uh, we talked about the ritualistic move uh, through the slow season, the rhythms of the slow season, and now we're talking today anyway, um, you know, uh, 
uh, gossip about discord in the locker room. So mm-hmm. we, we, it took us four games to reach that stage. And, mm-hmm. and reports that management is not considering a change behind the bench four games into the season, man. Yep. And, uh, and we'll talk about, you know, the gossip a little bit. We'll talk about that more because I do want to play it. It's a pretty interesting clip. We'll do that later in the show. The other thing, and we didn't mention this as one of the kind of, you know, uh, steps on the the spiraling team, uh, you know, checklist, but a, a really good veteran player scratched for, for no reason. not really any apparent reason. I, I, where on the list of problems has Connor Garland been for this team this year? Not high doesn't, for me. Doesn't register. Doesn't register. I thought he's done some pretty good things. Absolutely, yes. I, look, I understand it. You had Mikheyev coming back. A- at least it wasn't Hoaglander. Hoaglander actually got a nice promotion to play with Elias Pettersson. That line did some good things. They got the matchup with Gaudreau. I think that's interesting. So I like that element of it. But is it really? Are you really fielding your best lineup when you're already desperate for wins early in the season, desperate for points, well, and desperate if you're not for, putting Connor Garland out and there? And desperate for chance generation 5-on-5. Five five. You know, I mean, Connor Garland does that. Um, you, your mileage may vary on him. Like, I don't have a problem if your take on Connor Garland is, while well, the analytics paint the picture of a first-line player, in fact, he's a middle six-rate scorer. Like, if that's your criticism of Connor Garland, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going further than that, I don't think's founded. I just don't think there's any evidence of that. I think Connor Garland's a really good player who works extremely hard, maintains an incredibly high work rate, um, and is dynamic, is dynamic offensively. So I just don't get it, you know, at the end of the day, I'm of two minds here because I don't like to be too critical of coaching decisions when a coach has bad options, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone who listened to us last season when the market was calling for blood behind the Canucks bench and I was far more circumspect will understand that this is a, you know, a hard, like a, a true bias, a skin deep bias for me. I, you know, Boudreau doesn't have a ton of good options. He doesn't like one of this team's issues is, you know, forwards who don't check that well. Right. One of their issues is defenders that don't attack that well. It's a poorly constructed team. It's been a poorly constructed team for years. Insufficient changes were made this offseason. Boudreaux's been handed a team with artificially high expectations because everything went their way for 60 games. It was a 57 games of snow day for Boudreaux last year. Wind at his back, best goaltending in the league, um, 12% shooting clip, uh, more than that on the power play, right? Like, everything just started running downhill. Uh, and the only really meaningful improvement the team made was on the penalty kill, which now has regressed. And so, you know, I'm not going to be too critical of him, frankly, for scratching Garland because you sort of go through the exercise. Would you have taken Joshua out? Well, this this kid... Blankenberg, Nick Blankenberg. Mm-hmm. So Nick Blankenberg, a five foot nine right-handed defenseman playing his eighth NHL game for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Heck of a find for them, right? He was Owen Powers' line mate. So Not bad. Jacob Truscott's teammate. You wonder if the Canucks were in on that. I know there was a ton of interest in him uh, as a free agent. Um, or you wonder if because he was five nine, he didn't sort of fit their profile. But that guy played mean all game, including one play where he absolutely trucked Vasily Podkolzin, who has six inches. And 50 pounds on him. And he came down the wall and just absolutely trucked Pod Colson. And the worst part about that play to me isn't that the Canucks missed on a really good right-handed defense prospect. <laughs> it was basically free-for-all uh, uh, eight, six months ago. It was that Blankenberg was so amped up after that hit that he looked around. 
he looked around. If you go watch the clip, you'll find that he looks around waiting for a response for the Canucks. Like, I can't possibly have hit a guy like that and not pay the price. No one comes and whispers anything in his ear. No, no one says anything, right? So are you going to take Dakota Joshua out of the lineup considering that aspect of how this team's playing? <laughs> but he hasn't done it. No, I know he hasn't done it. But in your so, mind's eye, if like, that's your concern about this team. But isn't that a justification for taking him out, right? Well, At I'm, least for a game and saying, hey, man, and we, we brought you in explicitly to do something and you're not doing it. Well, and we might see it. And they've already sent that message, yeah. frankly, during the preseason and training camp, right? So... Um, you know, we'll see. I mean, I do think we need to see it more consistently, but at the end of the day, from Boudreaux's perspective, are you going to remove that guy from the lineup? Like, probably not. Are you looking at Garland and, and Hoaglander as sort of um, the same side of the coin? Are they yeah. both kind of guys you see as can't-kill penalties, middle six guys who are rate-scoring aces and don't have enough size? Like, if you're looking at, at it that way, then you're kind of flipping a coin between the two, you don't want to take out Hoaglander, I'd bet, because he's actually played pretty well, and he already got demoted, and yeah. that's become a pressure point in the market for an embattled coach. And and at, and at least again, there was a sign, a recognition, I think, that Petter, or that Hoaglander is playing well and, and deserving of more well, minutes, right? And I, I wouldn't be shocked to I wouldn't be shocked if Pedersen prefers to play with Hoaglander, right? I mean, that's yep. a factor in decision making too. Um, so you sort of go through the list and. I mean, Mikheyev's back now. Obviously, he's going to play. Kuzmenko's been a huge bright spot for this team. Brock Besser's probably been Vancouver's most dynamic chance-generating five-on-five player. I know he hasn't been rewarded, and fans hate when I say nice things about a very good player who's also a good person. But, you know, he hasn't scored yet. I think there's uh, some things in his timing that probably look a bit off, but the work rate's been there and the chance generation's been there. I think he's looked better since being paired with Bo Horvat as well. For sure. That, that, I think that's helped well, both players a lot. I mean, the, the Miller-Pearson thing was not, was not working. working. No. Um, and Pearson's game has been way off, right? Uh, he, again, a guy I'm not super worried about, although at some point he's going to hit the age where diminishing returns are going to hit, and sometimes they hit with not a ton of warning, right? Like sometimes the guy's just – they're good one year and they come back and they're not like that that happens to guys at the age of 30 and 31 particularly in a league that's in a constant state of arms race to get faster and yep. faster and younger and younger year after year so I mean you go through the like what's Boudreaux to do there's not a lot of good choices here it's not just the Garland thing either that I found bizarre Kyle Burroughs plays 24 minutes that suggests to me that he's your second best option on your among your defenders in that game Two guys come back, not four, two guys come back, and he's out of the lineup having talked to the media at the skate. Like, they posted video on their socials yeah. of Kyle Burroughs talking. Like, is the organization even talking internally? Was that a last-minute decision? Like, that's that's strange. It's strange that you'd have a guy who's going to be a healthy scratch speak. To Like, it's just weird. It's bizarre. Um, and I wonder if that came down to questions about will Myers get there in time, that kind of stuff, right? You know what I mean? Because he he was on the plane to. Well, you know, you know his itinerary. Know. It's not like he arrived yeah. minutes before puck drop. This wasn't a trade. Anyway, it's just bizarre, right? And the the Garland thing fits within that category. It's not just him though, right? Bizarre decisions up and down the lineup. At least they did the Martin thing right. Like at least they didn't get desperate and start Demko in a game that he absolutely should not have played. But yeah, I mean the seams are showing all over the place. I, I'm not going to blame Boudreaux for thrashing about trying to, I actually like in this situation 
where the eyes of the hockey world turn on the job security of a coach, the thing I actually hate to see is when a coach plays the most predictable possible lineup because mm. that's passing the buck. That's like, what else do you want me to do? This is the hand I was dealt. I like seeing a coach try to creatively problem solve. And so I'm not going to be critical of him for scratching Garland, but it is bizarre. And it's far from the only, like, it's not an isolated bizarre decision. There's a ton of bizarre decisions coming up and down the organization and actually beyond Boudreaux himself at the moment, just compounding the frustration that fans should have watching this team. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about Luke Shen uh, yesterday. He moves back down the lineup. I still didn't think he looked great. I mean, he's in a better role now. Obviously, they get Pullman back as well, uh, which was a bit of a surprise for me, but good news to have Pullman back just purely for Pullman beyond anything best else. Game, best game of the year. Yeah. That was his um, best game of the season by a lot. And But, you know, I can think you could very easily make a case uh, that if it's if you have the same healthy bodies available next game, it should be Pullman, Myers, Burroughs down the right side for next game, right? That's, that's what I would be doing and, and take Shen out. I mean, I don't know. I don't think they're going to take Shen out. I don't think they are either. But yeah. I think you could make a very strong case based on on-ice results that Burroughs should be in the lineup over him right now. Um, oh, boy. it's that Again, I'm not going to criticize him if there's not that option. The, the options you've just laid out are both they're tough. bad. They're both tough. They're both bad. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text Brutal. line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Our pal Cam Sharon will join us next to chat about what he saw from the Canucks last night, what he's been seeing from them so far early this season. That's coming up next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance, here with you live in the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Um, Cam Sharon is going to join us momentarily. We were talking about the decision of Bruce Boudreaux to uh, scratch Connor Garland ahead of the game against Columbus last night. Jay in Calgary says, sitting a player who is playing well because others are playing like garbage sends the wrong message. Pearson would have been the obvious choice. And as you said, not really a lot of good, obvious uh, options for Bruce Boudreaux at this point. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, read a couple of texts that came in also about Zach Wierenski, who I thought had a really, really good game. Lee says, uh, is it me or does Zach Wierenski not get talked about enough for how good he is? I'm reminded every time he plays the Canucks. And Chet and Burnaby says, uh, bring up how ca Zach Wierenski casually sauntered through the whole team uh, while our defense is still mastering the dump in. And yeah, especially in contrast to a lot of what we saw from the Canucks, I thought Wierenski had a really, really strong game last night. To chat about that and more early takeaways from the Canucks season and last night, a friend of the show, contributor at The Athletic, former member of the Toronto Maple Leafs front office, Cam Sharon, joins the program. Cam, thanks as always, man. How are you? Um, I'm, uh, I'm doing great. Uh, considering I, I <laughs> talked myself into doing 82 of these games. <laughs> <laughs> Seemed like a good in, idea a few weeks ago, didn't it, Cam? <laughs> in as much detail as I'm doing it, uh, yeah, I'm having the time of my life over here. <laughs> so you're not you're saying you didn't enjoy the game last night, Cam, from an entertainment value perspective? It actually wasn't a bad game uh, entertainment-wise, and I would argue that it was probably one of the more fun games uh, on the night. I watched 
I watched a bit of pretty much every game except for Philadelphia and Tampa. And I enjoyed watching Columbus. I'm not enjoying watching the Canucks so far. It's um, their defense is just, they have no ability to move the puck beyond Quinn Hughes and it's really starting to lag. And uh, I think you mentioned that as a takeaway from my game one recap. And I didn't really think of any of it at the time. That's all I can pay attention to when I, when I keep tracking these games and I'm there's, there's nothing other than Quinn Hughes moving the needle for, uh, for the Canucks uh, from the back end there. Well, I had another, I had enough familiarity that you captured something I expected, you know? And so it was the first thing that stood out to me Um, a little bit better last night, but I mean, I think we're up to 14 total scoring chances that Canucks defenders have contributed to the entire season. And that's in four games. Like that's brutal. Yeah, I'm just I'm, I pull I put together my data just before I went on from what I have, and uh, I have defensemen from the other team taking 25 scoring chances, and Canucks defensemen taking 10. Oof. So that's over four games, and that's so more than double um, what the other team is able to generate. Uh, you mentioned it, uh, I think, kind of, well, before I came on, Zach or you know Zach Orensky being able to do what he did uh, cost the Canucks last night what John Carlson was able to do and uh, to an extent what Dmitry Orlov and Nick Jensen were able to do yep. is why they lost in Washington. Yeah. Well, one of the most frustrating parts of the night for me is watching this Blankenberg kid on the Columbus Blue Jackets play his eighth game and I'm watching him and I'm thinking, man, this guy might be Vancouver's second best right-handed defenseman. If he switched teams, if he switched jerseys mid period, um, I I, I, I I don't I don't even know if he wouldn't be the best at this point though. Oof. Oof. And and frequently the knock on small offensive defensemen is that they're not great defensively or physical and he had he he also laid two big hits. Yeah, he was he was he was a mean guy. He's he's now in my Will Borgen um <laughs> absolute have a have a crush on that guy as a defender with top four upside group. He's joined my Will Borgen list. Congratulations that's, to Blankenberg. Uh, that's uh, I praise. Seen him good. You've seen him good. <laughs> uh, Cam, were there any bright spots from Vancouver's game? Because I'm watching that last night. Uh, you know, I thought their first period was good, and then I thought that was one of their worst defensive performances of the year. What do your numbers say? And what bright spots, if any, could you take from Vancouver's performance? I think just on the whole, I haven't really sifted through all of what I have just yet, but from my early impressions, just watching, uh, I I think Andre Kuzmenko is a lot better than I gave him credit for coming into the year. He's been probably one of the more consistent. Wow. That's really weasel words there. Um, One of the more consistent. I think he's been Vancouver's most consistent forward game to game in terms of moving the puck and kind of linking together those exits and entries, what we talk about um, a little bit better in the offensive zone than I thought he would be. Pedersen had the monster game in Washington, but I don't think he was as good last night as Kuzmenko was. Mm. Um, and I think too, generally the, the difference between the Canucks and their opponents has been the, de- the defense, but the forwards have really held up. And this is still a team with three good forward lines. And even without Con- Connor Garland in the lineup last night, 
I mean, the second half of back to back, I like their forwards look like we're keeping right up with Columbus's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they should because <laughs> Columbus isn't a good team, but yeah. but they were on the second half of a back to back, and the difference was what we would expect it to be, which was on the back end. Cam, what are you seeing with JT Miller? How would you diagnose what's been going on with his game in the early going? Oof. Um, that might be a few, that might be the, the subject of a future column. Uh, I haven't really looked at what's going on there. Um, but yeah, there, that line, whatever line he's on just hasn't been able to transition the puck. It feels like there's a, there's a dearth of rush chances when he's on. They're just not really moving with any speed. And, you know, this is my first season kind of watching this team as closely as I am. So I don't really know what JT Miller's bread and butter was other than, you know, outside of the power play, which is kind of how I, how I really got to know him last year uh, when doing pre-scouts. I don't, you know, at five on five, I couldn't really tell you what, what, you know, what really seems different because I wasn't as plugged into the team last year. Well, definitely not attacking off the rush ever is a departure from what we've seen of JT Miller in previous seasons, both as a wing and as a center. Yeah, I'm just not. I'm just not really seeing that line create four on threes, three on twos, and part of that, you know, I don't. I hate to always bring it back to the D, but you got to bring it back to the D. And part, you know, part of what an, an active uh, group can do is turn those two on two rushes into three on twos, or those three on threes into four on threes, create a little bit of extra space. There was last night during the uh, during the Devils and Ducks game. I saw you. Sh- you all should really find this highlight of uh, Andre Palat's first goal with the, Dev- first goal with the Devils. Mm-hmm. Hughes breaks into the zone, um, goes off to the wing, and pulls two checkers towards him. And that just creates space for Ryan Graves, who I, you know, no one would classify him as, a, as an offensive defenseman. But he was just – the fact that he was there opened up a lot of space, and uh, the Devils were eventually able to get the puck onto the stick of a, of a guy that, you know, they want to score the goals. Um, just having guys jump into the rush can really open things up. It, it gives the forwards a little bit more space, even if it decoys. And that could be an issue for the Canucks offensively. They're just not activating anywhere. And I don't really have a frame of reference. I don't have anything to compare it to from last year's numbers, but that was, you know, that that's kind of where I'd look. It's always good uh, watching your team rush the puck up the ice and then just see a defenseman kind of, be past uh, a defensive forward on the other team. In conversation with uh, Cam Sharon here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. And, you know, I, I wanted to kind of ask you about the the interplay between the defense and the forwards in the offensive zone. You were speaking on the rush, but, you know, Drance and I were talking uh, earlier in the show and per natural stat trick, and, you know, it's early, so maybe take it with a grain of salt, but uh, the Canucks scoring chances per 60 at five on five is right near the bottom of the league ahead of only Arizona and Chicago. And as you said, look, the forward group is is relatively deep. They have three pretty decent lines. How much of their inability to generate consistent scoring chances so far has been at least partly uh, as a result of the defense not being able to support the forwards in the offensive zone? Yeah, and I, and I don't know if it's if it's that they're not able to, if they're just not allowed to activate, uh, if it's a coaching or a systems thing, because it, it, the, what the numbers are telling me is that the Canucks are going uh, high to low a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, they're really trying to work that cycle game 
because we don't see, not only do we see the defensemen not taking chances, but they're also not setting up any chances. They're not setting up any shots. They're not going D to D or switching the angle or making the goalie move. It seems like, like that, that tells me that when they're getting the puck, they're just kind of sending it down the wall again and letting the forwards do their stuff. So now you have the forwards working three on five or three on four, really close to the net. And that's not, you know, that's not opening anything. So they need to get the defenseman at least moving around a little bit, uh, get them down near the net. Like it wasn't only Plankenberg last night that was, and, and uh, Wierenski going down near the net. Like we saw Vladislav Gavrikov mm-hmm. make a couple of, of, of saunters in, and he's also not a, not a, not a guy that I would classify as a, an offensive guy. Uh, in the Calgary game, even, we saw Nikita Zadorov, who I don't think I've, I've ever seen him. Uh, he deked around the whole team and cut to the net and set up a great scoring chance for himself. And I, I don't think that any anybody on the Canucks shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be able to do that. It's just they're not doing it. We haven't seen, you know, it would be nice to see Tucker Pullman just kind of take the puck and go end-end every now and then, but you know, he's not. And I don't know whether it's an ability thing or whether that's a coaching thing, but I really think they need to open that up. Kind of let the D activate a little bit more. I think it's an ability thing. Yeah. I think it's a bit of both maybe, but like, I know well, you mentioned this. Tom, in would say that, Tom would say that because it confirms his priors. <laughs> well, but I know you mentioned this in, in your article, Cam, and I, it's something that stood yeah. out to me too, but like Tucker Pullman, you know, I think there was one rush where he gained the zone uh, and eventually Pedersen scores on that shift there. I noticed a couple other moments where it seemed like Pullman was making a concerted effort uh, to join the play in some way, but, there's also just limitations there, right? So I think it might be a, a reaction to the personnel they have on hand where they're saying, hey, this isn't their strength, so we're going to ask them to play in a different way. But whatever the reason is, it's been really noticeable. And, uh, you know, another thing that really stood out to me from your your piece uh, tracking the Washington game earlier this week was that of the scoring chances the Canucks generated, very, very few of them came right after a pass, right? It was individual efforts or off a rebound, but in terms of actually setting up a teammate – uh, for a scoring chance. I think there was two in the Washington game. And it just, I, I, again, is that, you know, an inability of the forwards to string passing plays together? Is that, again, come back to the defense not activating? When you see numbers that low, what is your kind of first thought for what's going wrong for a team? Yeah, I I don't really know what the first thought would be. Like, I think it's mostly that because there's so little movement in the zone, that it's easy to defend. So it's easy for defend. Yeah. It's easy for defenders to kind of get their stick in the way. They know where everyone is. You're not going to be able to get those cross crease passes. Everyone kind of knows where everyone knows where everyone is and the mind of an offensive player, like the, the, the internal processor of an offensive player needs to be a lot greater. So you watch someone like Mitch Marner just kind of work through the offensive zone. He's, he's skating around with the puck, but he's also thinking and he's also seeing where there's openings and we haven't really seen enough of that. And it's kind of a, I don't like, you don't get to be this good of a hockey player without knowing internally that, that that shots are better off, you know, if the goalie's moving and working. So, you know, they really just have to find a way to create more motion. You're right. Like there's just, there's just not uh, enough setup passes. And I think they're just so easy to defend right now uh, because of that lack of motion. It's not probably not even just the defenseman not activating, but you know, just really simple cycles, two guys on the wall, kind of one guy drifting toward the front of the net 
it's easy for for one man to pick them up. So you need to you need to be faster. You need your forward to drop to the point. You need to find a way to stretch out the D, create those passing lanes, take those sticks out of the passing lanes, and even create a shooting lane, create some some randomness. It's like the offense hasn't been bad, but it should be a lot better than this. Cam, rank your areas of concern for the Canucks. I'm going to ask you one, two, three, four. Okay. Really, mm-hmm. really, really um, scattershot, big picture. Offense, defense, special teams, goaltending, one through four. Can I split up the special teams sure. with power play and penalty kill? Yep. Go ahead. So one through five now. Okay, power play is my number one concern. Penalty kill is my number two concern. Defense, number three. Offense, number four. Goaltending, number five. I would say that the power play is my biggest concern because I loved it last season. I thought it was elite, and I haven't seen enough of what made it elite last year. And, you know, I I don't know if Kuzmenko is long for that net front role on PP1. We've already seen him taken out for Besser. Like they're, you know, when when the puck comes down to the slot, you need someone that you know can finish. And Besser was great in that role. Uh, also winning battles and working the puck back to Miller and Hughes, who do some great stuff together. So uh, you know, I haven't really seen Horvat set up enough from that uh, from the bumper spot. He likes to take those nice passes from Miller. I think I've seen two of those this year. They're just not winning enough battles. It's it's not. It's not working like two, like I love the two shots that the Canucks are able to create. No other power play was able to, to do that mm-hmm. last year. And they just haven't really worked them together where, where the threat of one is setting up the other. So, you know, maybe Besser's the answer, but, or maybe, you know, they're just slow and unconfident right now. But, you know, just, just based on how good I thought the power play would be and how poor it has been, that would be my number one area. Cam, always really appreciate the time. Hopefully uh, in the near future here, the Canucks like make you stop regretting your decision to, uh, <laughs> to, to write about every game they play at some point this year. We don't regret yeah. your decision, bud. We're very grateful for the intel. All right. Thanks that for having is, me on, guys. Uh, that is Cam Sharon, who you can and you can find the work he's doing at camsharon.com. And uh, very, very interesting. Always learn something. Uh, yeah, don't miss those after games. Day, yeah. Don't miss those after games. They are... Like, I'm at the point already of getting at him during games <laughs> right after just, like, trying to make sure um, that, you know, what I'm seeing matches his data set. It's probably the most granular team-level coverage yes. you'll find of any club in any market. Just um, his point on the power play and listing it as his number one area of concern. And I think he's – not that it won't turn around, but just as something that is not working right now – I it was I was watching the game last night and they had one power play I believe where they were really whipping it around the third it period with urgency which was great five Looked shots good. four scoring chances but I'm in such like a such a weird headspace with this team that even you know you know what you sometimes get this where you're really just grumpy or frustrated or maybe you've had an, a, a a fight with your partner or I've, something I've never been grumpy yeah no with this you team. you wouldn't know this no but, sorry and then even things that would normally <laughs> be good or happy you find a way in your head to like turn into a negative absolutely you know what I mean oh yeah that was me watching that power play it was really? like it was like oh well where's this been where's this been huh <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> I was, like sitting wow. there with my arms crossed like oh sure now you decide to do a good power play oh wow I and I it. realized that's irrational and stupid like it is good it's good that they had a good power play but that was just my first initial thought so one thing I want to quickly point out to our listeners for anyone who's going to text into the Dunbar Lumber text line and point out that you know 
Well, Drance, for Drance, the power play has not been a concern at all, but Cam says it's the number one concern. There's such a difference in approach. Like, old habits die hard, right? Cam's an old R&D guy, so he's watching the Canucks, and he's like, my biggest concern is the thing we could fix, mm. right? <laughs> which is which is the power play. For me, I'm more about being right on the radio, or at least pretending to be. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's going to be good. I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about fixing it. I'm just worried about being right in 15 games. And so that's why I'm sort of uh, focused on the power play. It's just a different approach, and I think actually a pretty telling one in terms of um, explaining how we come at it a, a little bit differently. But, you know, the defensive attack thing, man, that's been pronounced. And Cam's data set is really illuminating the extent to which, like that 25 scoring chances against generated by defensemen. And the Canucks have played, what, one top blue line? I mean, it's not like the Canucks have played yeah. the Avs. Nope. You know, or the Avs twice, or Calgary, or, you know, Florida before the Ekblad injury, or uh, or one of these defensive groups that really gets up and down. You know, the Washington Capitals have, like, a pretty good top four. The Edmonton Oilers' defense is the weakness of that team. I don't know if you saw their game against Buffalo last night, but woof. Um, the Philadelphia Flyers, you know, they, they're, they've got some decent defensemen, but no one's super dynamic. Like, Anthony D'Angelo's their best offensive defenseman. He's fine, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a player. And then, uh, and the, I mean, it's not like the Canucks have played like a really high-end dynamic defenseman, but every time they've played a guy like an Orlov or a Jensen or a Wierenski, uh, you know, the the fact that the Canucks have Hughes, who they're grinding into dust, and he doesn't quite look like himself and yeah, really going. that's a big part of it, because in a lot of games... In, Qu- in Quinn Hughes's Canucks career, right? Even if Zach Rowenski is playing like that, it's not as noticeable because Quinn Hughes is playing like but that on the other side. Hughes had scoring chances last night. Hughes yeah, led the he, team in scoring chances. He hasn't He hasn't been Quinn Hughes. No, but that's such a high standard. Sure, but it's still built into your expectations of what you're going to get sure. when you watch this team. Well, and, it, and when you take it away, it becomes really dire. Or when you play him for 28 minutes a night coming off the flu and you know you don't have the depth like you don't have the depth to win if not everyone is the absolute best apex version of themselves. The Canucks haven't got Apex Demko yet, right? They haven't got Apex Hughes yet. They've got Apex Pedersen and then, you know, uh, Kuzmenko's played well, like some of their forwards have played well, but you know, certainly they're far from getting Apex Miller. Yes. And and without all the cylinders firing, the Canucks are hopeless. And this is sort of the big concern We'll get into this in the next segment. One thing I really want to talk about over the second hour of the, the of Canucks talk is how much Vancouver's performance through the first week should impact what we expect from the team overall. I really want to have the conversation about have you seen any enough this week mm. that you've changed your view on what to expect this season? Because at, at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about. Is the sky falling or is this just four games, right? Like that's such an important conversation that I, that I think we got to have. But, you know... The thing that concerns me, and I I talk about this a lot, the mark of a good team is when the wheels fall off and everything goes against you and and it rains, right? Do you pick up the three points over the tough four-game stretch or do you get one? Because at the end of the year, it's four or five points that are likely to make the difference between wildcard one in the West and out of the playoffs, right? Drafting 15th hopelessly, right? The Canucks have 
had a tough run with some of their best players not being at their at their best without the goaltending percentages in their favor. They're running uphill right now. And some of that's on them and some of that some of it's outside their control and is just bad cluster luck. But the good teams find a way to pick up two to three points over this stretch. The Canucks have failed to do that. And that's sort of where I get a, a little bit concerned here. Uh, Marcus and Gibson's text in says, uh, Jamie Drance's grumpiness is wearing off on you. <laughs> Referring to my reaction to the power play. <laughs> just, ah! What, what, what's going on? I mean, what it sounds like you were earlier? grumpier during the game than me. I was. I've, I have been. It's, we said it all yesterday. We're, we're, we're just watching the same thing unfold again. And it's, it's, it's not fun for anyone. Who's, who's it fun for? Who's enjoying it? Who's oh, having fun? It gives, Other me, than you. it gives me strength. No, I'm kidding. Honestly, I'm, no. I, I am actually kidding. Like, yeah, no, I, I don't want to tell the same story every day. I don't want to deal with, you know, a, a, a group of players that feel embattled and, uh, and hard done by and an organization that gets sensitive. And, um, you know, uh, I don't want to deal with the Vancouver media as part of the problem storyline. I don't want to deal with the... Um, history i don't want to deal with a season that's fundamentally over by november nope especially especially because you know i'm a little quicker to react to it than the market is and i'm never going to buy into a late charge to a playoff spot that's never going to actually materialize and so it just makes the whole experience so much worse i'm just, yeah I'm, you're right i'm grumpy now too <laughs> There you go. I, if I've rubbed off on you, I'm telling you, you, you just rubbed up off on me there. That was, um, you know, I was not fun. We're going to go to break on not that fair, note. bud. Yeah. I flipped. I successfully ruined Trance's day. You though, did. You, that, was, so. that was some serious Jedi mind tricks. <laughs> I'm very Mar- excited about I, I, that. And you know what? I want to I let you know I'm not blaming you. I'm blaming Marcus in Gibson. There you go. Fair, Marcus and Gibsons can wear that one. Uh, 650 dare you, Marcus? is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, you can hit us up at any point in the show. Uh, and yeah, there were some interesting comments that were made uh, around the league from a, a national perspective, talking about the Canucks and some of the issues. We'll play those back and get into it, plus the conversation you were just alluding to, Drance. Lots more on the way. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Sportsnet 650, Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Of course, Drance, or Canucks Insider, also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And we are, of course, coming to you live from the Kintech studio, uh, which looked great, making its debut on Sportsnet Pacific last night. The Kintech, Fo- Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Lots of good uh, text coming in as well, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, some good questions that we'll get to. I did want to play this back, though, because I, I know it's making waves in the market, and you know, we, we've been talking about all of the uh, the beats in a, a season in crisis for a big Canadian market like Vancouver, how many of them were already seeing repeat from what we saw last season around this time, uh, albeit a bit later in the season uh, last year, Dranter, and one of them is that the team becomes a hot topic of conversation for all of the national media. And, you know, for us, a lot of the time, that's Elliot Friedman on the Jeff Merrick show. He spoke about the Canucks again today. We'll play that at some point. Uh, And today it was also from 
Colby Cohen and Frank Zaravelli on the Daily Faceoff live show. So, of course, we all know Frank, regular Sportsnet 650 contributor. Uh, Colby Cohen, former pro hockey player, uh, I believe working for Daily Faceoff now and also doing some work with the Chicago Blackhawks. And uh, this is, you know, an interesting one which we can dig into. A couple of clips I want to play from Colby Cohen. First of all, this is him talking about his overall impressions and what he's hearing about the Canucks as well so far this year. Yeah, it's really evident, Frank, that they're sitting in the dressing room waiting for bad things to happen to them. And I do think that a lot of this dysfunction starts above the locker room and outside of the locker room. And I think there's a lot of question marks there in Vancouver right now as to really who's in charge, who's calling the shots. Is there uh, any cohesiveness between coach, GM, GM, president of hockey ops? You know, I'm just hearing a lot of things out of that dressing room that are real distracting for the players. Are guys going to be there? Um, you look at their roster and you look at, you know, the only notable free agent after this season is Bo Horvat. So this is really the team that they're going to have. It's not like they're sitting there blessed with a ton of cap space, but uh, you can be fragile as a team and you start looking around, guys start blaming each other. Um, they obviously have a good goaltender, but you know, I've heard there's a lot of friction in that dressing room between some of the, you know, star players and then the rest of the team. It's real clicky uh, in that dressing room. You know, the way that they're promoting players, particularly on their social media channels and just everything that I hear coming out of that dressing room, Frank, it seems really dysfunctional at the moment. That is former pro hockey player Colby Cohen earlier today on Daily Faceoff Live with Frank Cerevelli sharing uh, some of his impressions from afar from a national perspective, but also some of what he's hearing. And again, former player, so he would have connections uh, still in the game. Uh, as you, you know all too well, the uh, how, how information disseminates in the NHL, uh, Drancer. And boy, is there a lot to unpack in that clip from Colby Cohen. Seemed pretty confident. Mm-hmm. No sweating there, right? Like, he wasn't sweating. He was just talking about what's obvious to him. That's always a little scary. No reach. No showmanship. Just kind of going at it straight. Um, look, you hear a lot. You hear a lot of stuff, and a lot of it's gossip, and a lot of it, you know, ultimately as a reporter, right? Like, as a guy who's going to go and face these players every day once they're back from this mm -hmm. road trip, and on other road trips, I'll be there every day. You know, this this tends not to be my beat, right? Like this is not something that uh, I tend to engage in. Um, you always hear stories about riffs in the dressing room when teams are losing. Yep. You don't hear about them when they are winning, you know, like it's a product of results that these storylines come to the fore players and teams always 1000% of the time rebut, these types of things, regardless of whether there's merit to them or not, when I mean, we saw it last year, right? The the Canucks lined up to dunk on the reports about discord between Miller and Horvat. Uh, you know, it is there's no gain for someone who covers the team like me to really indulge in this. I just sort of think you can always you always hear stories that can be spun either way, right? Like you can easily spin stories. Like I've heard stories about you know. Uh, sort of guys in the room that would lend to a lend you to be like, wow, that's a great sense of camaraderie. What leadership from that guy. And I've heard stories about discord. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you get along or not. That's you know, it just doesn't, you know, you know, who's one of the hardest guys to be teammates with in the entire league, Nathan McKinnon. 
Does it matter? You know, does it matter at all? No one cares. They win. They're great. He's amazing. Like, who cares? Who cares? That's the thing that stands out to me more than anything. Be is, professional. You know, I know when we hear things like that, and obviously this is not the first time we've heard about Discord or whatever, no. the atmosphere in the locker room. Who I, cares? I understand the fan perspective of, you know, you start to dig through the social media postings and, oh, okay, who's following who? And and you really kind of try to try to suss out where the drama is. For me, like, okay, you don't like this guy. What does that have to do with how you're playing hockey? Go out there and play better. You can still do that even if you don't like the guy. Every single one of our listeners who's in a workplace, I guarantee you, has colleagues they don't like, that they don't get along with perfectly. Does that is that a valid excuse not to do your job well? Come on, why are you hanging your head because you don't you're not going to go out and get drinks with some guy after after the game? Whatever, you still got to go out there and perform. I don't get along with Rick Dollywall, and we do great work together. It is what it is. He's just a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously though, you just who cares? Who cares? Put it aside. You know, I don't care if it's clicky. I don't care yeah. um who gets along. I don't care who hangs out. I don't care who's never in the same room as a, as another guy. I don't care who's not being invited out to watch football. Like you're pros, you're paid extremely well. You wear a Canucks crest on your on your chest. If you're not getting along to the point that it's impacting your performance, that's on you. It's not on your relationship, it's not on the other guy. It's on you. You know, I really hope that that's not what's going on with this team. Who knows what is going on with this team, though? The performance is brutal. But, I mean, who cares? Just be pros. Be pros. And if you can't be pros, then that's a far bigger topic Mm -hmm. of conversation for this organization. And you'd hope that they did their diligence before making significant commitments. Um 650-650 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, yeah, this text comes in. I've worked with people I absolutely couldn't stand, still went to work and did my job to the best of my abilities. And look, I understand that it can make it more or less difficult, right? Yes, of course, we would all love to, you know, be in a workplace where everyone's you know on the same page and vibing and the chemistry is great. When you're a pro, as you said, there has to be that element of professionalism that you find a way to push through it, even if that's not the case. A, a lot of the times, a lot of the times, too, when you get these rifts in workplace environments, it's because people are pointing fingers as opposed to taking responsibility. Like, it's almost always two sides that are wrong, right? Like, if this is what's going on, I mean, it just sounds to me like, you know, anyway. there's And again, this is this is from one report, so we're not... But but who cares, right? Just get along. Like yeah. you, you, you don't have to get along. You just have to perform well. This team has performed well in the past with this same core of players, right? Like they performed well for sixty games last season. Uh, you bring in Mikhaev and the chemistry is like, come on, come on. You know, everything seemed hunky dory for sixty games last year. Everything was hunky dory in the bubble, right? When this team is good, these reports don't come out. When this team is bad, they do. Come on. These are pros. Yeah. These are pros. That's our expectation. I, I like. Come on, Andre Kuzmenko. He seems like a a, a great hang. That that's thrown off the vibes. Yeah, it's no ridiculous. Chance. No way. Uh, anyways, so that's one uh, bit, and I just wanted to play this other one quickly as well from the same show, uh, Colby Cohen. We talked about this a little bit. We won't spend too long on it, uh, Drancer, but uh, this was Colby Cohen's perspective on Connor Garland being scratched for the game last night. Frank, I was literally getting ready to say to you, this is the one guy that you would never want to take out of your lineup because he plays the right way. When you watch him, he doesn't cheat. He stops on pucks. He goes to the net. He plays bigger than he is. He really does 
put it all on the line. And you can't necessarily say that about every player there in Vancouver right now. So did not make sense to me. I think that decision, Frank, rubs a lot of players the wrong way. Other players take that personally and not in a way to rev them up, but almost in a way that you would get pissed off at your coach and your management team for making that decision. Uh, again, that is Colby Cohen, former pro hockey player, now with the Blackhawks and Daily Faceoff on Daily Faceoff Live with Frank Cervelli from earlier today. You know, Woof. as I said, we talked about it, but just I thought it was in- interesting to hear from a player's perspective uh, the potential impact of scratching Connor Garland and Jason and Ladner Texan. Uh, if you can't be bros, be pros, which is a great succinct I way of saying that. it. I love that. If you can't be bros, be pros. That's fantastic. That's fa- that's amazing. <laughs> Thanks. Thank put, you for to Jason and Ladner. Put it on a, one. Put it on a T-shirt. <laughs> put it on a T-shirt. That's fan, That's Indeed. lovely. That that sums it up. Uh, what we're saying very very well. Um, all right. I, I do want to play the clip from Elliot Friedman uh, at some point here, but let's uh, let's talk about what you were alluding to in the last segment there, Drancer, with just the idea of how much, if at all, has what we've seen from the Canucks so far through four games changed what you overall expect from this team right well, should we do that or should we do the Friedman okay let's, we get let's into do, Friedman let's do let's 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 keep this segment very very much focused on the drama okay yes. and then we'll yes. and then we'll move into the analysis in the last segment to close out this so show. here was Elliot Friedman uh on the Jeff Merrick show earlier today weighing in on where things stand with the Canucks right now and also a little bit uh, of what he saw last night from the Canucks the question I asked off the top of the show today is is taking one point out of the game yesterday enough to keep the Wolves at bay, keep them away from the front door in Vancouver? Well, I think there's two different kinds of Wolves that we're talking about here, Jeff. One one pack of Wolves is, you know, the people who don't make those decisions but are frustrated with the way it was, go- was going. And one pack of Wolves is, yeah. is the Wolves that actually do make the decisions. And while you do worry about both packs of Wolves, you worry about one a little more. And, you know, my sense is the Canucks are not in any hurry. I, I just don't believe their preference is to make a coaching change. I, 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 don't, I don't believe it. I, I think they would really like to see if somehow they can find a way to straighten this out and, and, and get some momentum. You know, I mean, like, I, I, like, you know, Rutherford was, was there at the Board of Governors. I think he's, you know, I think he's also been around the team a little bit. Like from from what I'm hearing, and this is secondhand because I didn't speak to him yesterday, but from what I'm hearing, I'm getting the impression he's trying to reassure people that he's not in a rush to make uh, a coaching change. So uh, th- that's kind of the, now. I could always be wrong. You know, sometimes you get boxed into a corner and you have to do what you, ha- you ha- things you don't want to do. But I just don't get the sense right now that he's in any rush to do that. Um, you know, the, the thing that concerned me last night was you look at that goal by Goudreau. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's like when I first saw it, I was like, are they playing three on three? Or, you know, how did he get all the way down the ice without really getting touched? And, you know, the best defensive teams in this league, you, you can't do that. against. I mean, Connor McDavid can do it against anybody. But, you know, a lot of other people yeah. can't. And that play was of concern to me when I saw it. But, again, from what I'm hearing right now, they, they really don't seem too eager to make 
coaching change. That is uh, Sportsnet NHL insider, also from Hockey Night in Canada, the 32 Thoughts podcast, Elliot Friedman, earlier today with Jeff Merrick. And again, a lot to unpack there from Friedge, uh, Drancer, but you know, it really just struck me listening to that early in the clip where he says, you know, the preference is not to make a coaching change. They want to see if they can turn this around and find some momentum. That could have been verbatim, verbatim from a hit that Elliot Friedman did with Merrick or on some other outlet, what, 11 months ago at this time? Really? 100%. It, it was exactly, exactly what we were hearing. And I, I have no doubt, look, Friedman is, is Friedman. He's the best in the biz. I'm sure that's accurate. I also would say, you know, you couple it with what we played from Friedman yesterday where he says making the coaching change this early would be basically an admission of kind of massive organizational failure. Like, of course their preference is not to make a coaching change right now. That's a really bad thing. That's an extreme move if you have to do it. It's just so striking how similar the conversation and the reporting is to, again, 11 months ago at this time. Well, yeah, and so, you know, Canucks countdown one week into the season, right? Players only meeting happened after game three. After game four, we got reports of discord in the locker room and the vote of confidence for an embattled head coach. Yeah, not the direct vote of confidence, but the kind of through back channels. We're not making a change. Don't worry. Nothing to see here. That you know, kind of vote of confidence. We're going to get the notable or like viral player quote moment next, I think. I th feel like that's next. And then well, we'll see. It might we might like skip order and get the 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 chant or the home opener depending on how Thursday's game goes, oh right? Goodness. That might kind of jump up a little bit in the order. Yeah, I mean, you got to win. <laughs> Yeah, they play tomorrow. They play tomorrow against a good team that's also winless. A good, a good hungry team yeah. that's desperate to get a win. A good hungry team. Yeah, that's uh, that's tough, right? At the, on the last game of a road trip. Yeah, yeah. Hun F fourth and six nights. Hungry is good in a dinner guest and bad in a yeah last game of a nightmare road and trip. I don't think opponent. Minnesota will have played since Monday, so they'll be rested as well. So there's. Uh, and we'll talk more about think, the wild game. I think the but, Canucks are going to ask the league office to not start them on the road next season. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about this early season Edmonton-Philly trip. I think, I, I think I'm think i side-eyeing this trip as something this team shouldn't be doing. Yeah. doesn't uh, It doesn't seem like it's uh, working out for them. And then I also... It's not even working out for us. <laughs> no, it's There's not. like so much drama and so much to talk about, but it's so repetitive. Yeah. I was so excited. Two hours. And I, and actually, we're getting, like, efficient at it. You know what I mean? Like, we did it last we season. We know how to navigate yeah, it. Yeah, but it took us, like, 25 games to hit all the beats. <laughs> now it's just, like, boom, 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 boom. We're doing it, like, going to different stations at a car wash. You know? Like, right now, we've got the, <laughs> you know, beep, beep. You press the buttons on the machine. It's, like, slow start to the season crisis, please. Yeah. You know? And right now, right now, we're getting, like, those big air things drying our car. Like, we're almost through it. We've just we we're so good. We're like polished, professional. We have a drive-through window set up. We know how to do the thing. I don't want to know how to do the thing. I want to do other things. No, I want to learn how to do something different. I would I would like to explain. <laughs> I'm stretch my wings a little bit. I would like to explain how a good team is winning. That would be fun. That would be super fun. I would enjoy that. That would be great. And just the other part, it, you know, you don't always hear a national insider like that kind of highlight the one play. And that really struck me that it was Friedman kind of stopping and saying, that's not a good, that's not what good teams do. Good teams do not have that play happen against them. And look, Johnny Gaudreau is a fantastic player. No, no, no. But that was a brutal, it was a brutal, change. it was a brutal. Break and no down. one, no one's even in frame except Spencer Martin. Barely. 
by the time Gaudreau puts it in. Like, no one's even in frame. Johnny Gaudreau, they have one good player. Gustav Nyquist's on their top line. Yeah. Boone Jenner is their first line center. Boone Jenner sneaking out to take faceoffs three and three. The Canucks, the Canucks surrendered a three on zero in overtime. It didn't result in a shot in net, and they still lost. I mean, it's again, you stack obvious mistakes on obvious mistakes for long enough, and you endure enough indignities, right? And it's just you, the market's almost immune to it. You know, it's like it's numbing. And it won't stop us, it feels like. Ten years. Ten years, basically, of this. Obvious mistakes being made. And yet, fans still talking themselves into this team year after year, every single summer. Right? It's only worked out once. And and partly it was because the season got halted by a global pandemic. But, like, obvious mistakes stacked on top of another for one another for a decade. A, a team with a ceiling that's really low, all in. The first week is a disaster. The conversation is exactly the same. Like, at what point? At what point is it enough? Not, not for fans, because we just love this team in this market. We, we're we we also don't expect good things from this team in this market. Yeah, frankly, I mean, there are fans that talk themselves into it every year, but most fans do it with a sense of gallows humor, sort of understanding that they're Canucks fans and suffering is part of the gig. But. I mean, at what point is this intolerable? Surely we've crossed that threshold multiple times over the last three years. Surely. It's tough. Uh, Cody the Escort says, what did everyone expect? I called this from game one. The roster isn't good enough. They don't have the compete level some other teams have. Skill oh, only takes you so far. We'll get into this. I, we'll get into this. But you you expected 0-3-1? Yeah. And I still just... You expected Thatcher Demko be below 850? Give me your NBA props. Send me your NBA same game parlays, bud. I still okay. Look, <laughs> I you, need to tell you, you you can debate. There's a lot to critique with the roster and how it's put together, and we've done that on this show. I just do not buy that this is like a true talent 75 point team. There's no way. There's no way. Their forwards should I be too not, good. I do not buy that this is a team that cannot real has no realistic shot at the playoffs. Like I just. Maybe I'll be ultimately proven wrong by that, but even with what we're seeing, I don't think you can just say, oh, it's a talent issue. It's a talent issue full stop, and they don't have enough. Well, I think it's a talent issue on the back end. Yes, but I'm talking And I think there are significant— Now, maybe, the, maybe it is that the weak link is weak enough that it undoes what the theoretical well, strong it, it link is, is a weak. Add. It is a weak link sport, but but here's what I would, here's what I would say, like— you look at Vancouver's center depth, which we, everyone talks about as this great strength, right? And it is a strength on paper. But on a championship contending team, right, are any of Pedersen, Horvat, or Miller in the Ryan O'Reilly role? Or are they all Braden Shens? Yeah. I mean, just answer me. Just yeah, what do you think? They're probably all Braden Shens. At least. So, so if you have. Pedersen is the one for me that. Has some ceiling yeah. to do more. Yeah. So, but nonetheless, if you have three lefty centermen, right? They all shoot the same way, so they none of them strengthen you on the right side, right? None of them are top end penalty killers to this point, right? And none of them are first choice matchup centermen on a on a championship team. Well, if you have three players that profile that way, then they are they can all be individually great players, but they are less than the sum of their parts by being. It's like having. 
three sluggers in the middle of your lineup, all of whom are good OBP guys and can hit for power, but they're all right-handed, you know, and like two of them are are not necessarily as good at, at hitting uh, lefty pitchers, well, then you're weaker than you should be. Right, those three, those four can be great hitters. You're probably still an imposing lineup, but you're not necessarily as good as you would be if you had a comparable lefty hitter. Right, like construction matters. And so, while I don't see a talent issue, I remain convinced that there's a construction issue, mm-hmm. um, both up front and on the back end, that sort of limits in practice what this team looks like on paper. And I do think that's part of, at least part of the story. Um, but let's get into this on the other side because yeah, I are. I agree with you. I don't I don't think there's any way that this team can possibly be said to have no realistic shot at the playoffs. I'm I'm probably the most negative voice about this team. Certainly the most critical voice about this team in this market. And I was never there. I was like, yeah, coin flip. Yeah. And people and, were like, oh, you're so mean. And I think <laughs> I, I get it. Right. If you were because we have fans who are you know believe it or not even more negative and critical. I know it's true. Than you are, Drancer, and they and they text in. And I get it if you are one of those fans and one of those listeners, right? It's very tempting to spike the football right now, right? Do the bat flip and say, see, I told you. And, hey, maybe you'll be proven right ultimately again. I just have such a hard time still wrapping my head around that. Just a couple quick texts before we uh, get to the other side here in the last segment of the show. This one, Unsigned says, you can keep uh, changing coaches. Bruce Boudreaux is definitely better than Green, but if you don't change the players, as this management team didn't, you'll get the same results. The mix and leadership is wrong, and Sean and South Van uh, on similar line. Do fans actually think a coaching change will fix this problem? You can fire every coach in the league, but until the players start to hold themselves accountable, nothing will change. I'm tired of the blame being put on everyone but the players. That is from Sean in South Van. Lots more to come. You can keep getting your text in 650-650 into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Final segment of the day is next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Final segment of the day live in the Kintec studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. I will say, at least, you know, we were talking about how it's not fun for us. You know, I know the fans aren't happy. It's not fun for us to be covering the team going through the same motions. They did last year. I will say the one thing is uh, the the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox is, is bumping all the time now, Trancer. There's no shortage of feedback and engagement uh, with this team right now, which is I, always fun. I mean, the, the good thing is you'd rather that. Like, when I, when I worked in Florida, when we lost, we disappeared. Yeah. Right? Winning was like magic, and losing, you could hear a pin drop, right? And that's the difference. That's the real difference between a Canadian market and a non-traditional one or a Sunbelt market, right? is when you lose, you become irrelevant in a Sunbelt market. And there are downsides to that too, right? Empty From a player performance perspective, right? People always talk about Vancouver being a tough place to play or the pressure of the media and the effect that that has on the team. But also an empty building has a huge effect on how players perform as well, right? With this market though, you're the biggest news item when you win it's just that it's positive and fun and, you know, people want to say hi and congratulate you and buy you, uh, send you a bottle of champagne when you're out on the town. And when you lose, things just get unpleasant, right? But the volume remains the same. 
that remains a sign of strength for this team from a business perspective in this market. The fact that people care is ultimately a good thing, even if it can seem unpleasant or difficult in the moment. Yeah, and I know, you know, we had this debate a little bit last season as well about, you know, is it is it lapsing into apathy? There's always going to be individual cases where that is the case, right? And, uh, you know, I before the uh, first game of the season, I put it out there on Twitter, you know, how are you feeling going into the season? I did get a couple people saying I'm feeling pretty apathetic because there hasn't been enough changes. But overall, on mass, it has not turned into that, right? It is still engaged, upset that the team isn't winning, hopeful for more. We have not seen that kind of switch flip over to apathy uh, in large part, which, as you said, ultimately is a good thing for the team, for the market, for the franchise uh, going forward. All right, so you were setting it up a little bit. Uh, we did the uh, the gossip segment <laughs> last last segment, uh, the national perspective segment last segment. Uh, you were talking a little bit about you know how much, if at all, has the the results of the first four games changed what you thought about this team, what you're expecting from this team for the remainder of the season. And and I'll I'll just kind of start and give my perspective, right? And I mentioned this a little bit before we went to break. You know, I probably thought this was roughly a 95 point team. I don't all of a sudden and look at it and say, oh, okay, this is actually a 75-point team. Two things, though. One, I think it is fair to question whether you want to call it mental toughness, the vibes, the atmosphere, whatever you want. Those questions that have been there have been raised all over again. They have not been put to bed, obviously, by any stretch. So I think it's fair to wonder... Are they going to be able to live up to the talent they have? And then the other thing I'll say is, okay, let's say, you know, I was going into the season thinking they're about a 95-point team. Well, that means you have extraordinarily thin margins to make the playoffs. The the margins have gotten thinner now, right? Like, yes, it's only four games, but you still have to play at a whatever point percentage now, and that's more difficult to do. Like, I'm not saying they can't do it, but they have already started to dig themselves a hole. So... My overall take on the talent of this team hasn't necessarily changed significantly, but I don't think it's fair, uh, unfair at all to say that and acknowledge that it has gotten more difficult for them to make the playoffs because it was always going to be, at least for me, in my perspective, a really near close thing for them to actually do that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that's that's right. I mean, so I, I was a little lower on them. I, I liked the over, but I saw it as a coin flip at, at 92.5, right? I thought I thought of them as sort of a 93, like a low 90s point total team. And the path to getting there is like very much still um, open, right? I mean, it's only of course, of course, you know, we're not at the point where the math gets imposing yet. Right. You know, no. At about 15 games. say you take seven or eight points from your first 15 games, the math starts to get imposing. You start to get to a point where you're like, okay, you've got to play at 110-point pace to get to 92, right? Something like that. And so that's when that's when I start to really like pull out my calculator and figure it out and, and calculate probabilities and, and kind of sneer at the idea of like being hopeful about a team making the playoffs because it's just so hard to come back from that type of hole. Um, we know that the playoff picture tends to be pretty much set by mid-November, right? So... A start like this matters, but in terms of avoiding recency bias, right, and not getting too firmly swayed away from your priors, right? Like, what what were our priors coming into the season? We expected this forward group to be pretty good. We expected this team to score, right? I think they've been so porous at what they've generated offensively 
that my view of what this team might be as an offense is probably downgraded. Like I've gone from being relatively confident that they're going to be a, you know, a top half of the league scoring team Mm -hmm. to wondering if there's a real, a real chance Uh, and not even like an outside the realm of likelihood, but like a real chance Uh, the fat part of the bell curve might be that they are at best an average offense. I I think that's a realistic possibility with what we've seen at this point. So I'm downgrading them a little bit on that side. I think there's a real chance that they're still a bad penalty kill team, but that was baked in for me anyway. I expected them to be a sub average. Like I thought average was going to be uh, a good outcome for them on the PK. I'm, I'm still, I still think that's very much achievable considering their goaltending and considering the fact that their goaltending really has been unlucky for me. Uh, four on five. I think that's going to bounce back. And when it does, I still think they will be below average uh, four on five, but I thought they would be anyway. Their power play, I, again, my prior is completely unswayed by their power play struggles in the early going, the 11.7% through four games. I think this team's going to be dynamic five on four, and I, I haven't changed my opinion about that. I think overall, though, I was trying to, I was, I was sort, of, sort of trying to put this together. I think where I have begun to consider the downside case as a more realistic outcome. For me, it really does come down to organizational stability. To me, that's going to be the stress test here. Because in a world where Bruce Boudreaux coaches 82 games, I think, I feel very confident that this team's getting 85 points minimum. Mm. Minimum. Like, their downside case is 85 points for sure. And and I think they're more likely to be in the low 90s despite the slow start. But is there a world where you replace Boudreaux with Mike Yo in midseason and this season really goes off the rails and you end up in the 70s? Um, you know, I still put that outside the fat part of the bell curve, but from an organizational stability standpoint, I do wonder coming off of this week, if that's a more realistic possibility than I was willing to consider in advance of the season. That's sort of where I think the crux of it is. I still think this team is what it is from a true talent perspective. The defenses look basically what I expected it to look like, where they'd have trouble finding that plan B. Uh, I didn't expect Miller to play like this, but I also don't think he'll continue to play like this. I know that Demko, even if Demko regresses in his average this season, we know from his profile, like even if Demko ends the season as like a 9-12 goalie, right? Yeah. Which probably, by the way, if that happens, this team's not making the playoffs, right? But a 9-12 goalie. Even if that's the case, I still think just with his patterns of performance that we're going to get like six weeks of nigh unbeatable Demko. And the team's going to pick up a ton of points over a stretch like that. Like, at some point, Demko's going to heat up and play like the best goalie, even in a season in which he's you know doesn't build off of his spectacular performance last year. I, I think we've seen enough stretches of dominance, whether it was in the bubble, whether it was March 2021, whether it was pretty much all of last yes. season. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've seen these stretches where he gets so dialed, and this team's going to be able to, like, one reason I'm not sweating in a start like this is that I think that Demko is going to carry this team at an outrageous clip for a prolonged stretch of the season, even in a year that we look back on and think, hey, that was an off year for Demko. I still think that we're going to see a stretch like that from him. So that's going to help offset this type of bump in the road. Um, I just I just do sort of wonder, can this organization pass the big picture organizational stress test? Because if they can't, I do think that's where this team really does risk losing 
some of the fastball that you get simply from employing from having, Bruce Boudreau. From having Bruce Boudreau as your yeah. coach. Yeah, that's an interesting one, right? And, 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 you know, we heard from Friedman they don't want to do it now, but kind of implicit in that is unless – things keep going poorly right like you're only you only report that if there's a chance it goes the other way at some point right implicit in that is that people are being are asking about it yeah are wondering about it within the industry and they're not being laughed at for wondering about it right like that's that implicit in that is that within the industry there's an expectation that this could be a thing and that tells that speaks volumes on its own uh, P in the C texts in, I look at this four-game stretch as signals so many Canucks five-on-five five goals for have been due to puck luck and opponent gaffes. They're lucky to have had leads. Uh, the team's record will get worse as other teams tighten up defensively. That echoes what we were talking about in the first segment of the show, right? Which is as much as they have scored goals, their five-on-five five offense has not exactly looked crisp and dangerous well, consistently. If, if there's one big-picture reason for concern, right? It's like through four games, through four games, uh, they have nine goals for, nine goals against, five-on-five. Right, their expected goals margin per natural stat trick, seven point two five four eight eight and a half against. So they've maybe been a little bit unlucky in terms of what you'd expect from their goaltending, but only by half a goal. Yeah, and they've actually been fortunate offensively, backing up what P and the C has to say. Um, so you know that sort of speaks for, like for the most part, this team has got what they deserve five on five. Their PDO is ninety nine five. Like there's nothing out of line with their process from a results perspective that would indicate that things you know don't have to change for this club to get better results in fact if anything this team's been a little bit fortunate versus what they've earned uh, especially at evens I, I where i think they have been unlucky genuinely is i do think that they've been unlucky on the power play um it's one thing when Edmonton ventilates you with outrageous passing it's another when Anthony D'Angelo beats you with a floats one not, in he floats yeah. one in um you know, I think the Capitals, like, I don't think either of the Capitals' power play goals were soft necessarily, but, you know, I, I do think there's probably, uh, well, th- but they were from distance too, right? There was, uh, sorry, the Ovechkin one that Demko kicks in, that was a lucky goal, right? I do think there's been some unfortunate moments for the team, shorthanded, which isn't to say the penalty kill's been good enough or even close, but I do think there's been some bad luck in terms of the goals they've permitted uh, four on five. I think that will regress and bring them, you know, on its own uh, a little bit closer to average. They still have to be better there. They still have to clean it up. I think changing the way they were doing things with uh, Bo Horvat being the first guy over is probably their best option, um, especially since Lazar and, and Miller were really struggling in the circle. But, um, you know, that's sort of the one area where I think they've been unlucky. And then the power play's genuinely just been pop gun. Like, it hasn't generated enough, but I, I expect that'll uh, go their way over the course of uh, 82 games. There's just too much talent here. And and same goes with Demko. Like, Demko's going to be good. I'm pretty sure. Uh, he's a goalie, so goalie performance never know. is volatile. But, uh, but I still think highly of him. Like, I still think you... Well, look, I've got a long way. You're going to feel confident with Demko in net any given night, regardless of how the last three games have gone. Yeah, through. like... I've got a long ways to go before that's not the case, right? A long oh, yeah. ways to go on Thatcher Demko before that's not the case. Months. I'm not concerned about that. Months. Yet. And because, again, even if this season is an off-season for him, I still think you're going to get one of those dialed-in stretches where he's like 960 for 15 games, and you're going to pick up probably 20 points over the course of those 15 games, maybe 23. And, I mean, that's going to buoy you. Like, that's going to help you eliminate this slow start at some point this season it's just you know you're when you have the divots when you have those moments you got to be able to do better than one one point and one, one point from eight 
right? And certainly you have to do better than one point from 10, which brings us to Thursday, yeah. a game they absolutely need. Lots of great texts coming in, 650-650. Uh, Sam texts in, I can't believe what I'm hearing. You're already saying they won't make the playoffs, only in Vancouver. That's not what I said, Sam. I said I had them to be about a coin flip, 50-50 to make the playoffs, and just by virtue of going one point out of your first eight, you've made it a little harder on yourselves. They no. could absolutely do it. There's no question about that. I'm not saying it's it's hopeless. Of course not. There's 78 games left. But it's just it was a fine margin already, and... They made it slightly tougher already. So I've decided not to post Dom Lecision's model every day this year. <laughs> I'm going to give him a break. Um, I'm going to do it every week. That's my that's my plan. I'm going to do it once a week. So I'm going to do it on Wednesdays, and I'm going to track the whole Pacific Division, particularly because we've changed the way we're doing it at The Athletic. We're no longer doing the, like, wavy lines that show you where. So I'm going to track it with, with uh, changes in the Pacific Division's playoff odds. Just because I find that interesting. I really sort of try to pride myself on having a good feel for the Pacific in particular, my insistence that the Flames were the class of the of the Pacific, by the way, aging well again. Um, anyway, Canucks have fallen over the course of a week from 43% playoff odds per Dom Lecision's model to 27%. Now, the model's obviously going to move and heavily weight banked points early in the season. That's what the model does. But it, it shows you that, yeah, I mean, this slow start, not cause for concern yet, right? It's... Nothing to overreact to, but they well, have... I think it's cause for concern. It's not sure. cause for uh, hopelessness. Yeah, but right. It, yeah, I mean, but but you know, they've gone from the coin flip, the weighted coin flip, to something closer to a one in third shot, right? And that I think matches how you should analyze it. Like their path is modestly, not significantly, but modestly more difficult, right? They now what need to get to your ninety-five points? Yeah, they need. Uh, 94 points out of a possible what 100 and they play 78 70 games, more games so, so 156, 156 more you know so that i mean that's a pretty heavy point percentage that's the you know 0.6 that's the equivalent of playing at a 98 point margin so yep. you know to be the team you thought they'd be before game one they now have to be a 98 point team as opposed to the 95 point team that's that's the hole they've dug themselves it's not significant it's a three-point hole um, but it's got a chance to grow if this, you, you know. You would much rather have the, the three-point cushion than the three-point hole, right? right? And you, <laughs> it's and, much preferable. And you saw Buffalo last night in Edmonton. Like, the Canucks have another game to play and a, and a cross-country flight before they're going to play Buffalo, who are going to be here and rested and actually have less distance to travel than the home team for that home opener on Saturday. Boston, uh, Buffalo's looking big. They're looking fast. They've got some really unique pieces. Like you have to contain with a defensive group that's not the fleetest of foot, and not the not the most sizable. With you know a pair of six foot four guys who are some of the fastest guys in the league, and Tage Thompson and Alex Tuck. I mean, that's not an easy game. That's not an easy game that awaits the Canucks in the home opener. The Minnesota Wild is not an easy game. I mean, you know, you can't afford to drop too many more without banking points. The Canucks have to get in the win column here quickly. Or what for now is, as you rightly said, a concern, becomes something a little more than that. Yeah. Uh, I'll run through some text here because lots of thoughts coming in. Jamie, the Squamish contractor, says, I had high hopes at the I start of the season. <laughs> now, now, after four games, I think it's time to start the Bedard sweepstakes. That's from Jamie in Squamish. It's, it's, I'm they're, not there. They're, they're not bad enough to get yeah. into it. I don't uh, think. That's what I, think. I don't think. Uh, at the, the end of the day, though, at the end of the day, though, you know, this is the rigor, uh, the rigid way that I view hockey, so feel free to get upset and text in the inbox and, and get mad at me. But you'd be way better off 
really flattening out at this point than you would be marching back and getting to 89 points and drafting 14th, especially this year where you don't even need to win the lottery to get, you know, I mean, Bedard's obviously an unbelievable prize considering that he's a hardcore Canucks fan and a generational shooter from Lynn Valley. But, you know, Langley's Zach Benson, he might be an Oilers fan, but he's excellent. Excellent. Brandon Yeager. The dub in general. Leo Carlson. Stacked this year. Like the dub is loaded. No, uh, one prospects. And like guys who are going to go five through seven are guys who would go top three most years. That's how loaded this. Like Leo Carlson's a six foot three uh, Swedish center who's having a historic start to his SHL campaign. Adam Fantilli is at one and a half points per game in, in the NCAA. Like that's Jack Eichel territory, right? Uh, He's off to an outrageous start. Uh, There are seven or eight forwards who could be, you know, in that class of maybe maybe of the caliber prospect where you could see them being the best player on a on a Stanley Cup caliber team down the line. Uh, Very rare that you get that in any given season. At some point, at some point here, you're you're actually better off to lose. It's just that we're not close to that point yet for this team. I'd say we're still. Weeks away. Yeah. Weeks away. Oh, yeah. Dylan Texton. It's four games into the season. The sky is falling in Vancouver. Nobody likes how the results are, but if they win the next eight in a row, what do we say then? And he says, that's being said. It's a definite sell and fire the coach by the deadline if we aren't at the playoffs. <laughs> Start to refill the cupboard. The, he reminds me of my old – so I had an old um, roommate right after right after college. Um, not a great guy. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give him too much love here. But uh, he – would always he was a huge Jays fan. That mm-hmm. was his best quality. There you go. And he would always talk about the Blue Jays in the context of, yeah, but if they sweep this next series, they're right back in it. Yeah, and it's not wrong. It's just it's hard to do. Sure, but it's I mean, hard. But we lived together like 2008 to 2012. Like there <laughs> yeah. were there were no yes. sweeps that mattered. You know what I mean? Like stop it, right? Um. So yeah, I mean, if any team wins their next eight. That's great for them, <laughs> you know? That would be yes, fantastic. that will significantly change the outlook of their season. That, and, and would absolutely change the conversation around the club. Yeah, you're just, you're already putting yourself in a situation where it's like, oh, we need to go on a winning streak now. We need to go on a big winning streak, right? Like, that's the hard thing about it is uh, you're- They got a little more time oh, yeah, for yeah, them. Yeah. But you know what I mean. But they're, you're already putting yourself in a very high leverage position well, I if, remember, if this continues. They, they won eight in a row when they hired Boudreaux, right? Um, and then extended the point streak beyond that for a couple of games, and then really at no point lost three in a row the rest of the year, played at a 106-point pace, and finished eight points out of the second wild card with the team that beat them having the tiebreaker. So really, they were eight and a half points out. You know, I mean, it's so hard to make up ground. We do not want to see this team in that position again six weeks from now uh, Jeremiah in Chilliwack because I just try to find his text here um, but he basically said he likes the the way we were talking about yeah he says love the outlook outlook the sky isn't falling but things will be harder now he says he's also a longtime Caps fan this is Bruce Hockey he says always been hard for his team to hold leads uh, but always better than most teams at multi-goal comebacks they were bad at holding the lead last year once he came in yeah. and that's a relatively smaller sample size but I'm uh, not gonna put the I'm not putting the blown leads on on Boudreaux Let's put it that way. That's, no. To me, it's not, oh, Boudreaux doesn't know how to, also, how to are, hold the lead. Also, who are the goalies for those teams again? Yeah. Like, that was before Varlamov, <laughs> right? I don't yeah. remember who it was. I don't remember either. But it wasn't uh, It wasn't exactly like the Holtby-Varlamov, um, Grubauer no. axis that the Capitals later were able to to lean on, right? Also, it's not like they had John Carlson yet. You know, like that, that defense was not... 
Uh, it was the Mike Green, uh, Jesse Schultz, yeah. um, you know, some other guys whose names I forget. Oh, Sh- Shane Morrison. Remember Shane Morrison mm-hmm. with the uh, with the Gaelic spelling of his first name? I mean, come on. Th- those those Caps teams were very different. His Anaheim Ducks teams were very good at holding leads, and his Minnesota Wild teams were great defensively until the year he got fired when he had the worst goaltending in the league. So, um, you know, I think Boudreaux's results indicate that he's actually an above-average defensive coach, but he gets there in a non-traditional way. He gets there by attacking, by insisting on pressure, um, by playing so aggressively that it actually gives him an edge in terms of what teams are able to generate against him. So I, I would push back strongly on the idea that Boudreaux is not a strong defensive coach. In fact, his teams tend to have a very, very robust defensive profile. Uh, final thought here from Chet in Burnaby. He says, I'm not mad at the results. I'm mad as I feel I've been lied to by by basically everyone but Bruce in the organization. We can see what is happening. We've seen it since 2016. That is from Chet in Burnaby. I'll sign off with this. When you do the JT Miller signing, right? Like until the JT Miller signing and the second round pick going out the door for the team to clear up their cap space for the benefit of flexibility this season with the Dickinson Stillman swap, right? Until you make those trades, I think it was credible. Management could credibly claim that they were conservatively playing the bad hand they'd been dealt. And prior to the season, in late August with the JT Miller extension and then right before the season on the eve of the season when they traded a a significant future to get off of Dickinson, all of a sudden this management group was in on this team and ultimately complicit in the performance of this group, right? I do think as a result, uh, this club's performance does, should, and must sort of reflect on uh, management's work in their first year now. That's it for us today. The PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich is next. We'll be back tomorrow at Sportsnet 650.